E-commerce isn't just an aspect of growing a successful wine business, it is crucial. And that's why I strongly recommend working with Offset Partners. As a proudly independent e-commerce technology and brand design company based in wine country, Offset understands the operational nuances and the customer service imperatives that distinguish a great online buying experience from a mediocre one. And that's why leading and legendary brands like Saxum, Arnott Roberts, and Kermit Lynch Wine Merchant choose Offset's proprietary commerce technology platform to power their DTC sales. If you're an allocated winery or a high-touch merchant that values an elegant, effective commerce solution for both you, your customers, and your team, reach out to the smart team at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T, partners with an S, dot com, to craft a better direct-to-consumer experience. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Jean-Paul of Christie's. Hello, sir. How are you? Good morning. Very well. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So you were uh, a philosophy major. I was. And that led into... More almost, necess- <laughs> almost necessarily led to working in restaurants in some capacity. And I felt good about it, though. I knew why I was there, if you know, for no other reason. Did you? Because I uh, that's like part of the problem, right? No, like, I mean, I, like I think I think people Soren Kierkegaard and stuff. Like, yeah. why am I here? And <laughs> do I feel good about it? I think and, existential questions necessarily lead to you know either pushing off of something and going to something else, or you know just kicking around for a while and, and really trying to figure out what what fits and you know what, what I never learned was how, was how to recognize what what I wanted once I got it so that's one of the things that led me to go through a variety of different uh, different positions before getting to where I am now I have that problem too like in, in real life yeah yeah not outside of this radio land <laughs> like <laughs> where I know everything about everything no uh so, but then you had studied French too yes and um I I had started Learning French at a relatively, I guess, an American in an American context, relatively young age, and uh, had a good series of French teachers in in Maine, and I felt like I had a good capacity for it. I enjoyed it, loved it, and so it kind of led right into a college major. Um, I was a French and philosophy double major, and a classics minor. So I was, you know, I sealed all the doors. I had to go into restaurants after that <laughs> because it's it doesn't lead into anything really aside from teaching, and I. Figured out after a while in college that teaching was probably not going to be for me. But I, I loved loved France and loved the French language and literature. So I, I it has worked out very well in terms of uh, of dovetailing with wine. Did you when you studied French? Did you get to pick a French name like one of those things where they we have, did? What was your French name? Eve. <laughs> oh yeah. Although although at Y V with a Y. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Although at that point, not like Adam and Eve. No, at that point we we. Just, <laughs> <laughs> no, not that. <laughs> took going to France for that. The, at that point, we we all made fun of the name by just calling it Yves. Ah, uh, <laughs> yes. And without a without a really hard and fast uh, French teacher to correct us, we just I was Yves for a while. I remember uh, we were studying Montan, and this girl uh, always used to call it Montagne. Montagne. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta go read my Montagne. <laughs> so then you went to France. I did. Uh, I did the you know traditionally junior year abroad. Um, I was. 
one of the only people in my class to do a full year. A lot of people did like the, the half bite, you know, the ha- the first semester or the second semester. And I said, I want to throw throw in all the way and just, you know, cut off. I'm going to be Eve for a while. I'm going to be Eve <laughs> incognito in, in France. No, so I swam for the whole year. That was in um, 2000, 2001. And where were you studying? Uh, I was studying in Dijon. Do they make wine there? Uh, I Too soon to tell. <laughs> I think they just might have got a couple harvests under their belt. I don't know. It's, it's kind of the edge of the, the periphery of the winemaking world, from what I hear. So what were you up to? I mean, how did it roll for you? It was, you know, it, it, it's funny looking back on it now because I didn't go there with the intention of learning anything about wine. Uh, I just happened to land in the capital of what a lot of people would advocate for being the greatest wine producing region in, in France, if not the world. Um, so it was kind of happenstance. So I was there for academic reasons for French language, literature, culture, cultural immersion. And, you know, I just happened to be at the University of Burgundy, which is short of, of certain universities in California. It was the most interesting food-related program that I'd ever heard mentioned because they actually have a vineyard on the campus. It's not, you know, there's a vineyard parcel that's owned and they go and travel to it. There's an actual functioning vineyard on the campus. And I'd never seen anything like that before. I'd never seen people take something agricultural and elevate it to the level of that kind of focus study. So it was a cool initial exposure. How did it work with you're just staying there? I mean, what did you stay with? Did you have sponsors or people you? I mean, the, it was my university, Clark University in Worcester, Massachusetts. They set me up with, uh, with the host family for the first half of the year. I had gone intending to stay for the entirety of the year. And things kind of went in a couple different directions about mid-year and I ended up leaving the host family to live in a university dormitory after that, a little bit closer to the campus. Is there possibly a story there? That sounds like there might be a there's, lead into a story. There's a, there's a story there. Um, they had set me up with a with a very nice woman who had two children who had taken in uh, foreign students for quite a few years, and uh, we got along very well. It was it was it was total immersion because nobody in the house spoke uh, anything but very very basic English, so it was great. I was thrown into speaking t- French twenty four hours a day, seven days a week, and having to work out those little words and phrases of which you never get covered in in a book for you know going to the store and buying everyday items. Um, so it was fantastic. Um, about halfway through the first half of the year, it came out that I was entitled to a little bit of a reimbursement from the French government for being a foreigner studying in, in France. Great incentive. So I went and applied for it, and it turned out that uh, going through the, the French bureaucracy, um, where I was staying was not actually a legal place for me to stay, in the sense that she was not allowed to rent her rooms rooms out to, to people because she herself was receiving um, a subsidy from the government. It was kind of like a housing project. But you wouldn't know it to look at it. It was beautiful. But, uh, you know, things got a little tense for a little while, and I kind of decided it was best to move out. So I, I ended up spending the second half of the year at the uh, at the University uh, of Burgundy Dormitory. So what happened to her, though? I, To be honest, I, I don't know entirely what happened to her. There were some other people who ended up staying with her after that that kind of let me know that, you know, some people came knocking at the door a little while later. And this was never my intention. 
It was never my intention to. So you got your landlord. I, got, <laughs> so. I don't know that. I'm possibly heard. imprisoned. It's possible. It is possible. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of like a French culture thing. Like I mean, it's the not steel and it's stuff. Not be Do you Island. call her? It's probably it's no. not Devil's yeah. Island. She's or, like, yeah. it's like Pappy on the movie. Yeah, she's <laughs> doing like hard labor. If I know her, she's probably got a grudge. <laughs> yeah. There's a grudge to this day. Plus, you drank too much showed truck lot. <laughs> <laughs> but that, living there was my first exposure to how a lot of people in France actually consume wine, which is not entirely, not always out of a bottle. Um, and it being Burgundy, it was there were many regional shops where you could go with your own container and, and buy wine en vrac, as they call it. You, know, you bring your own container, and your your wine is dispensed. If it's red, if it's white, if it's rosé, it's dispensed from you know a vat. And you you want a liter, you want two liters, you want a liter and a half. You know you you pay by the liter. So she would have wine with every every dinner, but it rarely ever came in a bottle. Which, so, you know, it's probably not that different than her situation now in prison, <laughs> where they probably also, because it's France. Now you're making people, me feel terrible. Give people this. wine. Well, bring it on. You know. <laughs> so after you got your landlord imprisoned. A- after that, after you, that, yeah, I was you, very proud. felt very proud of myself. You eventually spent more time in France, and then you swung back to the States. I did. Um, I, for the rest of the year, and actually made a, a, quite a few trips around to... Um, to northern Italy, um, to the southwest of France, to down to the south of uh, around Orange and near Chateau de Papa, oddly enough, and came back to the U.S. and uh, didn't really know what I wanted to do because I just had this kind of eye-opening experience of living in a foreign country. And you know, for me, the culture shock was as much coming back as it was going there in the first place. So coming back, I, I, I fell in with some some close friends of mine who had already moved to New York and who are all working uh, in various levels of the service industry. So some people in restaurants, some people in bartending, and I kind of just jumped into doing concessions and bartending at a Broadway theater. Oh, okay. You're working on Broadway? <laughs> I, I, if I ever said that, people would you know, kind of look askance at me. I, I, was, I was working on 42nd Street at the American Airlines Theater doing bartending and concessions. But well, What was that like? I mean, I got to see... A lot of shows for free. Yeah, I got to see a lot of actors in without makeup and <laughs> coming in the front door. Was like, that pretty or no? Uh, half and half. About yeah, half yeah. and half. You yeah. know, you could whatever you saw on the one day would be erased the next day with uh, you know someone kind of yeah. <laughs> so it was the thing is you would see the same show eight, nine, a dozen, two dozen times, and you'd hear it to the point that you really knew the play almost as well as the people on stage. Which so that's great. kind of like the service industry too. Yeah. You're like, <laughs> would you like a cocktail or a glass of champagne to begin? I've never, <laughs> like, I've never said this before. This is this you know, minute. <laughs> the line that I've spoken for many occasions. You try to pretend that you're not actually looking around the room at the rest of your station to see what you have to do at the same time. I've never done that. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, you were doing some bartending now. Yeah. And and you were good at it? I mean, was, I, I mean, I was passable at it, but I... What I did enjoy was kind of the opposite of what we were talking about, is that it actually can be different every single night. Mm -hmm. Even though we were only bartending for a very short amount of time, the mixture of people and the actual actions that you took would be different every single night. I mean, it's not, it's baby steps up to the point of, you know, working a a station or working in a full restaurant, like eventually would be the case. Um, But it was intriguing, just because it was, I had notions of what people did for a living. I'd known people who did various kinds of jobs, but I didn't really realize how different things could be on a nightly basis when you throw 
the randomness of, of one person serving someone else uh, into the mix. Yeah, I mean, I, I think of it a lot of times as like egg orders. You know, you think like, okay, I'm going to go into a restaurant and order eggs. That'll be simple. And then it turns out that egg orders are really complex. There's like 80 <laughs> ways you could have eggs, you know? But everything's like that. Sure. You know, like drinks are like that. Like, you know, whiskey's like that. You could do that in a few different fashions. Absolutely. You know? I mean, you can you can take anything you want at the basic level. And the more you get into it, you know, the more... The great stuff is the stuff that rewards you from going for going deeper into it. Like wine, probably. Like, like wine, I would probably put it up there at the top of the list in terms of things that are... Things that admit of being uh, curated or, or admit of being, you know, connoisseurized. Yeah. Well, well I mean, tea. Tea's sucking. But, I mean, not a few years. It's only relatively recently that most people would acknowledge tea mm. or coffee as being part of that group of things that, you know, there are acquired knowledges about and that, that you know, that ha- they can have specificity. That this kind of tea brewed and this kind of teapot will have a different flavor, aroma, physicality than a different kind of tea. I mean, Peter Leem is probably the most uh, articulate person. I mean, he's a mutual friend of ours that uh, has done amazing things for, I mean, sherry, champagne, and tea. But you're saying here. I mean, you know, in China, they've known this for a while. (laughs) You know what I mean? I'm I'm not. There are other people who have, you know. My world isn't that small still. In the wilds of Maine, perhaps. (laughs) That's so kept to the tea thing. Still comes in a tea bag. Yeah. Yeah, Well, my parents do. So you progressed further in your restaurant career, and where'd you work next? After working at the theater, I went to uh, Park Avenue Cafe on 63rd and Park which uh, was the first kind of big bustling restaurant that I that, that I worked in. Um, it was David Burke was the chef. Did you get to see David Burke without I did. makeup? I, <laughs> no, seeing him win, with makeup would be you know coming in early in the morning and seeing. No, I'm not going to get into that too much. <laughs> he was he was a, he was a great, interesting guy to work around. Um, person heading his kitchen was a, a, a chef named um, Neil Murphy who really was an ex, as far as I know, an ex-submarine cook who ran. Is that true? He used to work in submarines? That's, yes. He was in, in the Navy. Not, not he, like he was an ex-subway cook. And no, 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 no. Not, not subway sandwich. No, <laughs> he was, you know, in the tube under the just water. Just making sure. <laughs> Talk about the same thing. <laughs> and he ran that kitchen like, you know, like a, like a galley. He was the absolute ruler of everything that went on the line. And they put out some amazing food. They really did. But I mean, that was my first exposure to a functioning restaurant wine list. And I had a great couple of managers there who were very active in getting the base level of understanding of the staff up to the point where anybody could answer more than basic questions about wine. And this was sort of there in 2002. Um, so, it, I mean, after 2000 and after 9-11, there were anybody who was working in the industry knows that everything kind of went haywire in terms of a restaurant still going to stay open or people going to go out again does it is the right thing to go out and enjoy wine and food and expensive things publicly you know it was it was very much a a concern and especially restaurants at the medium to to higher end the concern was is are the good times ever going to come back from you know from the exuberance of the of the 90s um and i have i have to say that it was it was it was encouraging to see the way people did continue to go out, and it it really introduced me to a level of clients who were very comfortable with 
a lot of established American wines. So that was my first real exposure to to wine overall was uh, was an, an American centered list at uh, Park Avenue Cafe. Because I see that as a generational change. Yes, like definitely the young sommeliers today seem to have never had a lot of these wines that I think people of our age came up on. Right. You know, like we started with American Merlot from Napa Valley. Yes, you know what I mean. It was quite popular. <laughs> there's, like, there there's, was a lot of it. Yeah, there's probably about you could you could maybe reduce it to about twenty twenty five names. So that, and if these names strike a chord with you in terms of a nostalgic aspect, then you probably came up in the wine industry in a certain in a certain time, as opposed to looking at them retrospectively and saying, "Oh, are they still making wine?" Or I've never heard of them. Or, I don't have an experience with them from you know because I mean. It, the basis are, is very successful vintages in the late 80s and early 90s, for California specifically. And also a tremendous amount of positive press. Well, a huge amount of press. Yeah. And a huge amount of thought that this was like a revolutionary change. Oh, almost. definitely. Like the, like the way that kids think today that the Jura is a revolutionary change. I think people thought that about California too, coming off the Paris tasting. Sure. Like, oh, we're going to be the best in the world or we are the best in the world. and you know, Or at the very least, we have something to say in a different key than they say it in France. But with a great amount of appeal to 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 Americans themselves. Yeah, and that also seemed to be more commercially uh, available for drinking earlier. And the labels you know, were in English. The labels were in English, which went a long way. Labeled with the variety and yep. you know, pretty straightforward. I mean, now it seems pretty straightforward. Going right. through like Burgundy and Germany and you know Italy, sure. and then coming back, you're like, oh, this is it. Yeah. But at the time, <laughs> it seemed kind of complex, no, definitely. you know. And I mean, it's for me, it's kind of akin to to English being your first language if you're. If American wines are your first wines, it kind of colors the way that you look at other wines and other winemaking regions and the way kind of you talk to customers about wines. I mean, if, if my first exposure to, to these kinds of quality wines had been France, it would definitely change the way that I – it might have made Italy a little, bit, a little bit more approachable. It might have made other countries a little bit more less, – less mystical. Um, but I, I don't think I would change it. I think I would still start with – the domestic and move move abroad that way. Yeah, I mean, I actually found starting with Merlot and Cab kind of screwed me up for, for really? Italy uh, at first. It took me a couple of years because I was looking for softer, uh, more fruit flavors. Were you looking for and the recognizable characteristics of wood tannin instead of grape sure. tannin? And so then when you you look for that in Nebbiolo, you screw everything up. <laughs> you know what I mean? You, you like the wrong wines. Yeah, you're looking for you it. Know? A black cat in a dark room. Yeah. <laughs> and everything's different. You know, the the, whole, the curve of how it drinks and how you're supposed to approach it is different. So it took me a while to to get, you know, like I remember my first visit and what I liked and now what I like are two very different things from that region. I think there's also, not to say that certain styles of wine are more sophisticated in and of themselves, but I think that there's, there's a non-primary fruit aspect and a non- upfront aspect that really is not going to jive with everybody the first time they try it. Whereas I think if people try American wines from that era and, you know, varietal wines like Merlot and Pure Cabernet, um, there's a generosity of the flavor, a suppleness and a roundness. Again, this is very, very broadly speaking, that gets people into those first. And then they kind of have to, I mean, everybody ends up in Piedmont and Burgundy at the, at the end, they say anyway, but you know? What's interesting is when you talk to those dudes, and then they they haven't really had a lot of American stuff, and then right. they try it, and 
they also like the wrong wine. I know. You know what I mean? You're like, wow, that's the, wow, you like that? You, you like, know what I mean? Like they have an American wine. You're like, wow, I don't that's, know if that's the one you like. It, but <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, like the guilty, oh, the guilty oh. pleasure. You know, because it's, it's the refracted lens the other way. No, it's true. You know what I mean? I, I remember visiting, going back to France and visiting a friend of mine who was studying there and bringing a bottle of Marseillais Chardonnay. Yeah. With me because, and this was about this, this time in 2002. So I'd been exposed to American wines and I thought this Chardonnay was amazing. I yeah, loved it. Yeah, yeah. It was so rich, so, and so full. It yeah. was like liquid butter. And yeah. just it's nice that you're still able to admit it. It <laughs> takes a man. I think I, every single wine professional has their Is that a tattoo that says Mercelet? <laughs> I crossed it out and now it says Merceau. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> Took some alterations. Did you hear about that tattoo nightmares where they. They find guys with really bad tattoos and then they alter them. There's a TV show. <laughs> that's, that's great. Yeah, and usually it involves penises. Like usually he's there's a dude with a you know a misplaced penis well, that's tattoo, easy. and then they they turn it into a cross or something. It's, I was just told about it yesterday. I didn't know this Chinese idea ideograms that actually mean like you know dirty words and yeah yeah sure sure no parking or something. <laughs> you know the kids today. There's a lot of tattoos out there. You know they like to alter their bodies in ways that can't be changed. <laughs> but I mean, I have seen that. Like I've I've been in Burgundy and not the penis tattoos. I mean, I've seen guys been like Amsterdam. Like <laughs> I've seen like been in Burgundy and talked to a dude and have them tell you that like Sonoma Contreras is a really good one. Right. You know, like they they're, they're being serious. You know? I mean, we we think back to the way and what you touched touched on the the Paris tasting, uh, the judgment of Paris in '76 was that a lot of the styles that developed in California were absolutely patterned after you know classic wines of of of, of France of classic Bordeaux and classic Burgundy. Burgundies. I mean, this the standard for California Chardonnay was white Burgundy. The problem was once you remove the question of is are the grapes going to get ripe or not, things can go crazy in the other direction. If you if you don't have to worry about about uh, acidity levels and, and and alcohol and the ripeness, then you can throw all the wood you want at it, and it's it's going to be a very different kind of animal than what you're going to get year in and year out in Burgundy. Um, so I think I think that when you when I brought that bottle of Marisolet and tried it with a French person and they were, they loved it. I think that they, they saw certain aspects of maybe what they had had in white Burgundy that only in like the great, great years. Right. Exactly. You know, that's a, what I think too. A year that has full ripeness that has a generous amount of alcohol, like over you know, 13 and percent. And you know, the, you can taste a rich oak quality and, uh, and, uh, I think that they, they, they saw those aspects just magnified in the American one. Yeah, exactly. It was it was like something that they would get rare, right? Rarely for them, and so they're like, "Wow, prized!" You know, what, would it age ten years? Probably not. Would it get complexity? Gain complexity in ten years? Almost certainly not. And but, you know, we've also seen global climate change, which hasn't helped. You know, <laughs> like areas that are that are exactly. already ripe getting riper. You know, that's you know, in that regard, two thousand three is probably the best example because I mean, it's it's a year we all. We all saw and saw some strange things happening and stranger things happening in 04 in certain places. But uh. but so then you went to a different restaurant. You got out of the submariner. Yeah. And you, did that guy ever just like in going into service? Was he ever like, dive, dive, dive? Like, did, did anything like that ever happen? There were, there were things thrown. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> there were things thrown. Um, I, I, can, I can remember breaking a number of things in succession in the kitchen right next to him. 
and just being absolutely almost jumping out of my skin from the way he was yelling at me. Oh, really? Well, that's fault. just normal. Uh, yeah. But I, I feel like that's happening. No, but there, there were stories of, you know, pots and pans and knives being thrown. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. steaks, you know. Rice steaks. Wait, big, you know, <laughs> Could you cook it next time? I steak eat coming this. at you. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, yes, I, I, I had a great time there. But I left and I went to Gotham Bar and Grill next. Um, which was a very different animal in the sense of not just how large it was, but also the the quality and the the, the sophistication of the of the wine program and what they were trying to accomplish and what they had been accomplishing successfully for you know for for more than fifteen years at that point. Was that the Michael Greenlee era? Yes, Michael Greenlee. Under him was Michael Nelson. Um, oh, Michael Nelson. Yeah, sure. both yeah. worked there at the same time and the Michaels, the <laughs> M and M. <laughs> The, uh, the the their team in terms of the level of wine knowledge that they were trying to get the staff to was much more ambitious than Park Avenue Cafe, and it was and, right, and rightly so. I remember more European stuff on yes. Greenlee's list than yes. than what you were talking about with Park Avenue. But he also had a relationship with a lot of producers of, on first name basis. Uh, that was my first real exposure to smaller production American wine, mm-hmm. and a little bit more classic. European wine at the same time. So you'd, you'd have heavy hitters and great vintages from, from Piedmont and Tuscany and, and the Veneto. You would have, you know, solid up and coming stars from, from Ribera and, uh, and Rioja and Priorat. And you'd also have a great swath of, of California Pinot and California Cap. Um, and it was, and it was very well executed and everybody, because the, the servers were primarily selling the wine to most tables. Um, everybody was kind of getting into it to learn a little bit more, to know what these wines were. It was a big list, you know, six, seven hundred dollars, six or seven hundred selections. About six hundred, right? Yeah. yeah. So you, you to know this stuff and have something informative or, or positive to say about just about everything on the list, you you kind of had to work at it. And it's a busy place. I mean, there's oh, absolutely. When I've been, there, a lot of people there. You do, you know, three hundred covers on a Saturday night, and you know, three star, three star service, and you know. Everybody was just loving it. They loved the food. They loved the wine. They loved the atmosphere because it had that New York vibe and buzz of like, you know, I'm happy to be here. And you look out over the sea of people in these, everybody's at their table. And it was just, it was electrifying. And what was it like working with Portali? Um, he was always present, not necessarily always addressing the entirety of the staff, but his his concepts in terms of how, how the food was, was presented and the feel of the restaurant was absolutely always, always a part of it. Um, very soft-spoken person, very, very self-effacing, very generous with his, with his time, but he was never, he was never a, a, a force that sort of pushed things out of his way. Like he was always there in kind of in the background because he, he had a team assembled that he, that he trusted and that really put his, vision on the plate every single day so was that still vertical cuisine like at that time was there still a lot of things like, it was kind of yeah things? it was kind of there, there were the old standby dishes that to a certain extent are still there now um the presentation was changed up from time to time but yes you would still look at something and say that could be an alfred portelli plate because it's a little bit higher than it is wide and but it was, it, it, everything was so well composed that you know you never you never had looked look askance at it it always always had a reason for being there and there was a period of time when wiley uh dufresne was in the kitchen i don't know yes if, that... I, if you tallied up the list of people who have been through i mean it's one of those restaurants that so many people have gone through to bill telepan was there uh not while i was there but 
Wiley, so many people have gone through to go on successfully and open their own ventures that it's it's been a great crucible for for talent coming through there. And so you picked up a bit about wine and what was it like working with Greenlee and Michael Nelson? They were a great team because they had such very different selling styles. That's what I always thought too. Yeah. If you if you put them side by side, I mean, it's kind of like good psalm, good psalm, bad psalm, not yeah. in the sense that, you know, one was a good person, one was a bad person. It's just they had very divergent styles. Whereas Michael Greenlee could be a little bit more authoritative and definitive in his pronouncements of how a wine drank or the vintage or the quality. Michael Nelson would be a little bit more descriptive, not long-winded, but just he had more to say in a in sort of a, well, you can either choose this or that. These are the differences. Whereas Michael Greenlee would say, this is the one you want. This is exactly what you need. And, you know, people would respond well to it or they would respond well to to Michael Nelson. There's just two different ways to sell some great wine. Yeah, I find that uh, you also have to have a kind of certain kind of room to be able to tell people exactly what to drink. Yes. Like it's it's not just the dude. It also it also helps if you have quite a few selections to choose from so that it, it's not you're not being definitive in what you're selling because that's all you have. Right, 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 <laughs> right, right. I have A or B. You have to have A. What about B? I have no B. <laughs> but it's also like people look at the list and like, boy, that's really big. I don't have the time to look at that. Right. Tell me what I should do. You know what I mean? As opposed to the 20 selection list where they're like, okay, let me check it out. Like, I, I wonder if it's harder for younger sommeliers to tell people what to drink because they're, the big programs have kind of gotten smaller. Yeah, it's, it's, it, it is interesting how it's progressed. So say from say the late 90s and early 2000s to now that you know restaurants the current trend is not to have that massive volume of of hundreds and or thousands of selections covering every major region and all of the vintages and just basically put the put the burden on either the person to see work their way through that or else just trust the the sommelier i mean the, the trend now as you know is more concise more curated more focused um I like the trend in general because I like for the person doing the wine selling or just speaking about the wine to have a personal relationship with, with what's on the page as, the, as opposed to it's there because the vintage is great or it's there right. because this producer is what needs to be on a list to get a grand award. Because I feel like there used to be more of that vibe. Definitely. Like you, you so. had to have these selections. There was a feeling you had to have these things. I think when, when restaurants were also more comfortable uh, – investing that amount of money into into inventory whereas now it's it's a hard sell to say let's sink half a million dollars into inventory that is going to necessarily sit there and exist on the list and not necessarily go out the door but things used to sell oh, i mean yes. we used to do big volume of stuff absolutely it's just at the same time it was supported by big inventory alto being a case in point yeah so you moved to alto later yes. and uh, we both worked there at one time so after after, after gotham bar and grill um, on the, <clears throat> excuse me, the, at the urging of, uh, of another friend, I, I, I went to, to work at Alto. Um, and again, another major change from two very American style restaurants, Park Avenue Cafe and, uh, and Gotham Bar and Grill to Northern Italian, specifically the area of, of, uh, Trentino Alto Adige. And this was the, Sc- the Scott Conant era. Yes. And he was doing a lot of more, almost kind of like German influences. In yes, way. definitely. Like, the same kind of influences that you would see in, in the wines and the cuisine were there on the plate. Um, Eric Zillier was the wine director there. What was it like working with Eric? It was, that was probably my biggest learning curve because 
going from two American restaurants to an Italian, going from two solid wine lists to a massive list of everything that you could possibly want or imagine in Piedmont, in Burgundy, in Bordeaux, verticals, large formats, you name it. It was all there. And you you changed at that time to be a sommelier because previously yes, you'd been a waiter. Exactly. So then you were an assistant. So the two pla- two previous places where I had worked, I was I was a waiter on the floor, doing some wine sales, but on the side. Alto was my first sommelier gig. And, and what was that that scene like? I mean, you're working with Chris Cannon, you're working with Scott Conant, you're working with Eric. Uh, I remember the the review that came out was a little tough. Did you come in before or after the review? I came in uh, after the review. <clears throat> so kind of a little bit of the pressure was off me. You know, the question had been decided, but the, the, the more pressing issue was, how are we going to continue to sell great wine? People were still coming in the door in droves. It was very, very busy, very popular. We had a great cocktail program. Um, and TJ, right? TJ. Yeah. yeah, I used to do some great drinks. Phenomenal mixologist. Loves food to a degree that I wouldn't could only hope to aspire to. And 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 knows his food, knows his ingredients, knows his flavors inside and out. Um, and the list was more than you could ever hope for because you could sell the $40 bottle of Schiava, or you could sell the $5,000 bottle of Rousseau Chambertin, and everything in between. Um, Which is somewhat unusual. Because a lot of times people have lists that are one or the other. Sure. And, or you have things that are, that are top-heavy or things that are just a mishmash. This was a well-curated list that had a lot of focus to it and a lot of, a lot of very well-chosen vintages and wines. So it was a pleasure. It was an absolute pleasure, and I, I have a lot of respect for Eric for what he was able to do uh, in the constraints of that space. Because it is a long walk to the sun. It is. <laughs> or it was a long walk to the sun. We, we both made that walk quite a few times because you were, you were there uh, in the years after, after Eric I actually left. got a, a wine runner to do it what? for me. It was like one of the first <laughs> things I did. I was like, I'm sorry, you want me to traverse the length of a football field to get a bottle of wine? You, 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 could, you could either go through the pastry department down one staircase, or you could go through the loading dock, and that's another staircase. Either way, it was about, it was about you, could, you could make it there and back in a minute and a half or so. I just want to clarify, there was an elevator, but only <laughs> one guy could use it. Like, there was only one guy with a key, yeah. and that was not Levy Dalton, so during <laughs> my reign. It would certainly have gone far too slow for the middle of service right. to go to chug down an elevator. It was the same situation with Danielle. You know, there was an elevator, but it was like massively slow. Right. And so you could wait that long and get fired. <laughs> like, <laughs> or you could run up and down the stairs. Then they yeah. have somebody who runs up and down the stairs too, don't they? Not when I was there. No. That okay. person was named Levy at that time. <laughs> and I remember one time they used to, uh, the guy would randomly like uh, mop the floor at like 8 p.m. Like the guy who, you know, clean things like regularly <laughs> but he would just he he mopped the stairs and i was like coming up with my screaming eagle or whatever it's like ferris bueller's day off like you know just throwing stuff in your path before you have you have to get back there <laughs> i was like dude uh is this the right time <laughs> like to be mopping stairs like middle of service i don't know i'm on my break you know <laughs> it was just a strange <laughs> encounter but true story so uh i mean so you did the alto thing how long were you there Alto, I was there right around a year. Um, but that was my, my big Italian education. And was, what, what were you drawn to? Um, I mean, I was fascinated with the, the, the wine 
of the of the region where the restaurant was focused was so the out the Alto Adige. I mean, never had Terral to go before, never had Lagrin, loved Lagrin, never had these sort of combinations before with the, with this food. Um, but it was also my first big introduction into Piedmont and tasting wines from the 60s and 70s and 80s, uh, a vineyard by vineyard as opposed to just, you know, this is a Barolo from 78. This is a specific vineyard. You know, that threw Piedmont into the same mindset as, as Burgundy for me. I mean, I think a lot of Americans haven't had the experience of the old Barolo. Right. And the, I mean, there's there's no reason why necessarily they should just because – it's it's hard to get well cellared examples as we've we've talked about this before about getting well preserved examples out of Italy is not always an easy task and people just weren't collecting them in the U.S. thirty forty years ago when they when they first came out um, so that was a, that was an eye opener it really was and I got to taste some great Burgundy as well that was kind of filled in some of the gaps of uh, of older producers that I'd never tried before. And so you stuck with the sommelier thing, and you went to work for Drew. Uh, I, well, actually, no. In, in between, after Alto, I went to Gordon Ramsay at the. Oh, that's right. You did the Gordon Ramsay yeah. stint, and that was uh, with they opened the restaurant in two thousand and six. So, what was that experience like? A restaurant opening. I mean, something else I'd never done before. I've yeah. never done a restaurant opening. So, from the ground up, I was part of the opening opening wine team. And Gregory Condes was the guy. Correct. Gregory Condes headed a team of eight of us, eight sommeliers for these two restaurants. and Because it was Mays, right? Mays yes. And, two restaurants and, and, in the London Hotel. Mays, the casual dining, and Gordon Ramsay, which was directly modeled after the, the Michelin three-star Gordon Ramsay in London. And it was uh, also Midtown, so not too far away from Alto. Like the same, same yeah, kind of 50, neighborhood. 52nd Street, whereas Alto is on 53rd. Um, it was... It was very hard to describe working, you know, 10, 12-hour days plus being there late into the night to put this wine program together to go over a very formal level of service, um, very European-style service, really building the restaurant from the ground up. It was fascinating. It really, really was. What would you do different if you did it again? Like, what did you learn in that process? Well, I learned more about how to work with people as opposed to just manage them and tell them what to do. If, if, the, the short story is that, is that within six months of the opening, Gregory Condes had left and I was the, the head sommelier. Um, there were a number of reasons why this happened. And what I basically learned from the process was always be honest, <laughs> always be on the up and up and know that you're working with other people and their livelihoods are depending on what you're doing. You're not just in it for yourself, no matter what. And I mean, I think a lot of sommeliers get pulled into the glamour of the, being, the luxury lifestyle. Exactly, because you know we're on a nightly basis. We could be we're selling an impression of of a way of 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 conducting yourself, a a luxury like a luxury lifestyle in in the, in the form of very expensive wines, very expensive food sometimes, and you know very formal service. So I think people can get pulled into that and think that they're the ones who are participating in this as opposed to the ones who are serving the people who are paying for this. So I think he might've just gotten pulled a little bit too far into it. Um, so I get, but what I learned out of the whole experience was I think how to work with people to a mutual end, which is customer satisfaction as opposed to working against people for your own interests and your own gratification. 
And I mean, uh, Gordon Ramsay is similar to Portali in that he's kind of quiet and soft spoken. <laughs> doesn't say much. The people would always ask, you know, is he, is his personality the same as what you would see on on television? And I say he is one of the most authentic, honest people that I've ever had the pleasure to work around. Um, there's a he ratchets down the intensity in real life as opposed to being on television, but he's a real person who acts mostly the same way as you do see on television. Um, but he has very, very high standards for people. I mean, a, a lot of things have changed between the time that I worked there, <clears throat> excuse me, and currently. But at the time, I really felt that he was had some of the highest standards in terms of what he wanted to achieve with the restaurant in New York uh, out of anyone I'd met. And how long were you there? I was there for close to three years. And and. I mean, you're drinking pretty well. You're setting up a list. I mean, what was that like? I had a, I had a lot of freedom. I really did. And I, I had some directives in terms of the style, the, the names on the list. I actually never so specific as this wine has to be there and you can't put, you know, Jurance on on, but everything has to be Sauternes. No, it was never that specific. It was more that there's a kind of three Michelin star, because that was the goal, three Michelin star restaurant wine list that they wanted to achieve. And so to that end, I did the best that I could. Keeping in mind, you know, you got to store things somewhere. You have to pay for everything. Um, but I was allowed a lot of freedom. And I really was able to taste a lot through reps, taste a lot, and, and put interesting things on the list. And what do you think about Midtown? I mean, you were there at Alto for a year and Gordon Ramsay for three. That's four years. It's a, it's, what do you think of the, the Midtown scene? Um. I kind of wish that I had a little bit more experience with it before, say, the early, before the 2000s to see if, because it really is the last bastion of the oldest styles of French restaurants in New York. I mean, this little triangle in the 50s, you know, going as far east as, as say, Madison Avenue uh, and down to like the, the, the high 40s. It's really where the majority of the old-style French restaurants and, and high-service restaurants were always focused. Um, I think it's very different from working on the Upper East Side. And now that I've worked downtown, it's very different from working downtown. Um, I think that people are a little bit more adventuresome the further away from this sort of triangle you get, again, as a, as a generality. Um, I think that they, they expect... Um, a little bit more formality in terms of the service, maybe as a holdover from these other very well-established styles of restaurants that have been there for a long time. And so then you did go work for Drew. Yes. I tried to skip over <laughs> the previous and get you there sooner, but no, you went to Drew? I went to uh, to Corton on West Broadway, formerly in the Montrachet space. Um, Drew Naporent and the Marriott Restaurant Group and uh, Chef Paul LeBrandt. And what was that like? You you were there, not at the opening, but pretty early, as I recall. Yeah, within a little bit after the opening until, it was about two years ago. Um, that, again, was a, so I, I was the head sommelier at Gordon Ramsay and the, the wine buyer, and also sommelier and wine buyer at, uh, at Corton. Um, it was a very different way of looking at a wine list because I was not only buying the wine, I was also the one selling every bottle and tasting every bottle as it went out. Um, so what was that change like? I mean, what does that mean for you? 
it, it meant that I was able to and had to focus a lot more on, on relationships with specific wines as opposed to in, in Midtown, there were certain things that I did put on the list at Gordon Ramsay because they were expected of a, of that style of restaurant. Whereas Corton, kind of the work was done for me in the sense that the list was entire, was hundred percent French with the exception of some port and Madeira and sherry by the glass. Everything else was French. So France was the focus. It was that way when I started and I maintained that through the whole time I was there. It didn't, I didn't feel restricted one single bit because it let me go wherever I wanted in a very, very diverse country for, for uh, in- inspiration in terms of pairings. What did you think about Paul's food? I mean, did it evolve a little bit over the period of time that you were there? It did, but it always remained very, very true to its, to his techniques and to his inspiration. Um, it was not easy food on any level, which doesn't make it, which is not a qualitative assessment of the food. His cuisine and the experience there requires a lot of the person who's who's in, who's enjoying it. Um, it's not casual. It's not. It's not easy. It can be extraordinarily fun, and it can be very very rewarding, but it's not casual in any way. And how did you find pairing that? Um, what were you? It was a challenge. It was it was a distinct challenge because the the one thing that emerged very quickly was that there was very often a, an element of sweetness that was was almost never purely sweet, but you would have six, eight, a dozen different flavor components on a plate, not all of which would ever be taken in one bite, but all had to contend with whatever it was that you were pouring. Very often, I, I, would, I would get a lot better reactions to pairings when I had wine that had some sweetness to it. But you can't do a wine pairing for a seven-course menu with all sweet wine. It's just, it's not expected. And if you try to do it, you know, you, you have a very difficult arc to, to fulfill. I mean, a menu and a wine pairing experience has to go from, you know, a beginning, a middle, a late middle, and an end. And it kind of has to follow. An ex- it doesn't have to be expected, but you have to hit all the points in the right sequence. So when did you first do start doing pairings? Was that with Eric at Alto? We did uh, more by the glass pairings at Gordon Ramsay than anywhere else. We didn't, do, uh, we didn't do too many pairings at Alto because of the nature of the list. It was really encouraged to you know, find that great bottle. And how did you structure the pairings? I mean, how, what was your approach? You talked about beginning, middle, and end. I mean, what does that really mean in reality? Um. In reality, at Corton, for me, it was important to not simply pair wines based on what was served by the glass, because that's something that just about anyone could do on their own. I mean, we did serve everything by the half glass as well if you wanted to, but it was very important to me to open bottles on a nightly basis that were not served by the glass, and things that required a little bit more explanation and things. It was much more fun for me. It was much more fun for, for, for guests to have... Also, older wines opened, um, things that people would never expect to have served uh, in a restaurant setting. And you, they're looking for the experience, so oh, you absolutely. got a chance to talk to them a little bit about it. Absolutely. I mean, you, you anyone who's had a wine pairing, you know that, hopefully, that, that the, the wine is being poured and there's a little explanation for it given before the food arrives. Um, not necessarily what exactly it's going to taste like and why it goes with the food, but just a short rundown less than a minute of what this is and 
you know, kind of uh, what role it's going to play with the, with the with the food. Well, when you say beginning, middle, and end, I mean, how do you structure that? What oh, okay. is that? Well, I mean, of course, you have to take your cue from the menu. The way that, and I think most chefs, in the way that they structure their 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 tasting menu, it obviously go, builds in terms of in terms of, of of weight of the food. So light before heavier and dry before sweet. These are traditional progressions, but in terms of a of a tasting menu at Corton, you would have a few different amuse bouche or or, or uh, starter courses. Then you get into sort of a uh, usually a vegetable, a lighter fish, maybe a richer fish. Then um, very often some sort of foie gras in the middle. Then you would go to meat or a richer fish, have a break, do cheese, and then dessert. It's kind of a traditional progression, but you just have to follow it with uh, with the appropriate wines. Um, but so, so, how did you deal with the foie gras? I guess is the question. You you, you throw a sweet wine in the middle. Um, mm-hmm. For me, more often than not, I would end up. Again, it depends on on what he would put the foie gras with. Um, I did often do Vomage Tardive Alsace wines in the middle, or I would do Jurançon because. Well, it's not technically, I mean, Jurançon is not too sweet in the sense of putting it in the middle of a meal so that it's not going to, you know, crash the rest of it. It's not as though everything that follows, it has to be as sweet or not, or sweeter, you know, and it has a refreshing level of acidity at the same time to be able to, you know, kind of clean things up before you go to, to red after that. And so, uh, you're at Corton and what was it like working with Drew? It was great. He's, he's one of the most authentic, engaged, 100% there people that you'll you'll ever meet in terms of restaurants. He has opened and run successfully so many restaurants that it is in his nature to be hospitable, welcoming, and service-oriented. It's just who he is. He lives and breathes hospitality. And, and do you work with David Gordon at all? David, uh, I had the fortune, the good luck to interact with quite a lot. He was not at the restaurant in, at, at Corton. He was overseeing the the restaurant group and the the list at Tribeca Grill. Um, but what he what he had done at that restaurant is still an inspiration. I think it's one of the most underrated lists in, ter- in the city in terms of diversity and drinkability. And I always took cues in terms of getting inform- information and advice about Rhone wine specifically and Chateauneuf du Pop um, for the selections that I made at Corton. And <clears throat> so eventually you decided to hit the the auction route. Yes. And so you work at Christie's now. I currently work at Christie's in the wine department. So we, as an auction house, uh, hold live and online auctions in um, in New York throughout the year. So usually about either 10 or 12 sales a year. We also sell as a department in uh, London, Paris, Geneva, and Hong Kong. And Christie's Worldwide has many more sale rooms around the world, mostly focusing, I mean, a huge diversity of departments from contemporary sculpture and fine art and photography to arms and armor to books and manuscripts, everything. So that's a little different than some of the auction houses that just focus in on wine and and do that. Because there there are some like that that are, you know, that move a lot of wine. Uh, But you guys also have art around yes like when i go to the shop there's or when i go to the showroom there seems to be things that if i were to knock it over it would be very expensive for somebody (laughs) the some of it is hard to be identified as art sometimes as well but the 
the thing that makes us uh, us different is really, first of all, the amount of time we've been doing it, and also our global reach around uh, into a lot of different areas. But yes, we do we do sell uh, wine is is one department among you know more than thirty. And so, if you come to the sale room in Rockefeller Center, you will see galleries that are that are could be have a photography exhibit. They could have uh, Rembrandts. They could have old master paintings. It could have uh, impressionist and modern artwork. These displays are constantly rotating based on uh, on the sales that are coming up. But do you ever give the other dudes in the other department a hard time? You're like, but you can't drink any of this. <laughs> what do you got here? You can't get Arms friend, and armor. Get what your do you friends want? together and eat the Picasso. A sword eater. <laughs> no, I mean, if if anything, they give us a hard time about not giving them enough wine. Right, right, right. Like, <laughs> what are you drunk all the time? I think that's the perception. The perception yeah. is that oh, you work in wine. In, in the wine auction industry, you must drink a lot. Right. Well, that's the same with sommeliers, right? Like yeah. every, even in restaurants, people think that you're just drinking all the time. Like it's, it's other like, people in the restaurant like it's a that front. work there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like it's a front for, you know, poorly conceived chronic severe alcoholism. <laughs> right. Right. Well, stop talking about me. Uh, <laughs> so you, you, you know, I mean, what's it like in the auction world? Why, why would one, why would person be in restaurants and then go to the auction world? What's the decision making there? For me, it was about kind of a, a change of schedule. Um, being a father now has. Congratulations. Thank you. He's 14 months old. Uh, it has definitely changed my perspective in terms of how you spend your day and your hours. Um, it's always been great to go out and stay out after work, but it's a little bit harder when you have a another life that depends on you. Um, so my decision was to, to and I, I'd been looking at auctions for quite a while because I think as a sommelier, you're always looking for how am I going to get really interesting wines on the list and into to customers' glasses. And I mean, the holy grail is, is older vintages, you know, because they're, but they're hard to get because they're not on everybody's distribution list and they're necessarily expensive. So I started looking at auctions to to fill in these these lists in the restaurants that I worked at. And I just became fascinated by it because here 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 was a book that was published, you know, multiple times a year with it was just jam-packed full of amazing vintage wines for sale. And if you wanted it more than anyone else in the room, you got it. As opposed to over here I have the this producer's or this this wine distributor's current offering. It's all current vintage or a year before, and here are the wholesale prices. I mean, you look at these, you have to shop from both, but wine auctions were fascinating for me because you could get all this old stuff if you were willing to pay more than anyone else for it. Because you could probably do that at wholesale too, right? You could call the distributor and be like, <laughs> I'll shoot you an extra hundred for this. <laughs> you just deliver it to me. I'm, I'm just kidding. Actually, you can't do that because it's regulated by law. <laughs> Being alcohol and, and, and in all. theory, <laughs> you could. Never hurts to try. I'll shoot you an extra 20 spot if you get it here. <laughs> A pair of saw bucks is yours. So, I mean, but what's your what's your job at the at the auction house? I mean, what do you do day to day? My day to day job is to price lists of uh, of wine collections and negotiate their consignment. So, how do you do that? Like, how do you price lists? I mean, what what's involved in that? So, uh, like just yesterday. Got a couple phone calls to the department. Um, someone will call up and say, "Hey, I have, I have all this wine. I don't really know what to do with it. I've been drinking it. And some good names. I don't know. Send me a list. 
they send me a list. Sometimes we go to where the wine is and, and have a look ourselves. We'll, we'll inventory it for you. And very often it's a, a wine that's been drunk over the years. Might have sometimes collections get away from people in the sense that they they buy more than they're going to drink. Basically, what we do is we 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 attach prices to it. We give them a, an estimate of of how much these wines would sell for at auction, and that's just based on other auction results. Or how do you go about saying I think this is worth that? Yeah, that's I mean that that's probably the 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 stickiest point of the whole auction market is how do you arrive at, at accurate pricing and I mean it, it's 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 difficult for anything that you that you bring to auction because it's it's a different market than the current retail and it's a different market than than wholesale it's somewhere that sort of hovers in the middle the thing with wine is that there's you're very rarely dealing with unique wines or unique objects so if you have a case of wine there have been thousands of bottles maybe hundreds of this made. Whereas if you're pricing artwork, there's literally only one, you know, specific piece of artwork by that maker. And, 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 and it's, it's a unique piece. So with, with wine that's traded around the world in a lot of different places, you get sort of a constant flow of information for how much people are willing to pay for individual cases or bottles. So there's a lot of reporting agencies um, wine market journal is one wine auction prices, wine prices. They all sort of collect these auction returns and you can search them. And we also know internally what we've sold a given case for over the last year or even over the last 20 years. Cause we have records that go back to our first auctions in the U S which uh, were in the eighties. But it, does it sort of create a situation where these are the wines that you find at auction and these other wines, which exist, you don't really they're not at auction because they're not considered auctionable or they're not yeah. they're not rated at prices or it, I mean it, are there two kinds of fine wine yes. like you know what I mean I, 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 in in the auction market it does kind of divide things very clearly down the middle there are things that are sold on a regular basis and that people will pay a certain established price for and then there's sort of everything else um, occasionally and things things go in trends just as drinking trends go Sometimes those things from the not really part of the wine auction market move into the other side. Some things go out of fashion. But by and large, the things that people have been buying and selling at auction have not really changed that much, with the exception of a few recent additions in terms of producers, which is most often predicated on, on a really high score. I mean, one thing we should say is that restaurants often buy from auction, right? Yes. And I mean, there's there's reasons that you would do that because the sommelier wants to find older vintages, like yes. you, like you said. And you know, I think a lot of times when people go to a restaurant, they don't realize that you know this was not here since the beginning of time. Right. This was something that was purchased by the restaurant recently at auction and resold, even though it's old. You know, it wasn't sellered there at the right. whole time. But have we seen a change where the restaurants that are opening that are moving in a different direction than the auctions are selling in terms of the collectible auction wines? I, th I think so. I think that that as restaurants open that have, again, those smaller lists that we're talking about that have a little bit more close personal relationship with the wines being sold, I don't know that there's that much emphasis on going to auction and picking up these older bottles because, again, it does represent a big investment. Um, but I think that 
there's a lot of overlooked high quality wine at auction that is not part of the that you know one percent of of highest end Bordeaux and, and and Burgundy that gets traded around. I mean, we had a sale back in May that was more than half Italian, and relatively speaking, the prices were very low on paper because the wines just don't come to auction that often. But the reality is there was an amazing demand for it, especially well-sellered examples of, of Piedmont wines from the 90s from the top producers. People absolutely could not get enough of them. It's made us rethink a little bit in terms of the way we, we assign prices to, uh, to things that we, that we offer. I mean, does Italy suffer from this a little bit in terms of it's not really on the charts of, of auctional yeah. goods outside of, say, Gaia, Giacosa, and Soldera kinda, and a couple yeah, others? It kind of does because, you know, the, the bulk of what we end up selling is class growth Bordeaux. So, you know, first through fifth growth, the top Pomerols and Saint-Emilion's and top Premier Cru and Grand Cru Burgundy. Champagne is in there a little bit, port. Anytime there's going to be wine auctions, there's going to be port. It being a an English based uh, based uh, in, used to be English based industry, but Italy definitely has suffered just because there's just not the the same kind of commoditization of the wines, and it's not for for the quantity that's produced. I can't tell you exactly why. Probably has a, has a lot to do with just non standardization. Of the wines, whereas Bordeaux has been very stable and very standardized in terms of its export market for a very long time. So, who's in a room for an auction these days? Who who buys at auction? If 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 some restaurants buy, but not not all restaurants, like you're saying, you know, some people in the move away from Bordeaux at restaurants, maybe they're not in the room. Who is in the room? I mean, do we see people from New York? Do we see people from other countries? Do we see people on the phone with people in the other countries? Do we see uh, representatives, um, who, what does a, a normal auction look like? The, the great thing about Christie's at Rockefeller Center is that you never know who is going to be in the room because there are so many reasons why people would be there. Um, if we're doing a sale in the same sort of week or, or time period as across the hallway, they're selling interiors or furniture or tapestries. There's an amazing diversity of people who can come in from anywhere in the world. So on a regular basis, we'll have people in the room from half a dozen countries. I feel that it's mostly private collectors, some industry people. On the phone and on the internet, the internet is the big, big factor. Because in all of our sales, you can bid live in real time online from wherever you are in the world. So we'll routinely see bids come in from two dozen different countries in the course of a, of a sale. And we, we, we keep track of, of where all these people are sort of coming from. I mean, it's, it's less than half in the U.S. for a lot of these sales. And is it the same names popping up all the time, or is it different people at different times? I mean, is it in general, is it a core group of collectors who return to these auctions, or is it always a different crew? For, for our live sales, I think that, that we, have a, we have a very dedicated, loyal clientele that have, have bought with us quite a lot in the past, and then we have very close relationships with, which is why it's always encouraging to talk to to potential consigners who might be a little bit concerned with, I don't really know if people are going to buy this. And I, our, our great advantage is that we have very close relationships with people going back many years, and we, we were very, it's very easy for us to sell things that come our way. You get a sense of who would be interested in Absolutely. that thing. Well, well before 
well before the, 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 the auction day ever starts. Um, whereas with our online only sales, there we're seeing new clients every sing- making up the majority of the registrants almost every single time we have an online sale. And it's really encouraging because it's very, it's very much in flux and it's very much uh, a, new, a new market almost every time that we offer it. And it's very encouraging. But I think eventually people will be as comfortable buying wine online as they are in person. At this point, I think it's still weighted towards the more traditional, I'll show up in person, I'll get dressed up, I will bring the physical catalog and mark off the lots that I'm, that I'm interested in, and I will raise my paddle, my physical paddle in the, in the room to indicate that I'm, that I'm bidding, um, which is fantastic. And it's still the core of, of, of a lot of our business in a lot of our departments. But I think the reality is within a gener- uh, less than a generation, you will see most people being comfortable with placing their bids through an electronic medium. Is that going to change the sense of like, um, you know, when an auction kind of goes on a run and there's a lot of vibe in the room and like people are real excited or real, uh, you know, uh, aggressive with the bids uh, because of the vibe in the room? As we move into like people ordering from their living room, are we going to see less like, you know, going on a run kind of thing, like where two guys kind of go at each other like right. rams? And well, I, I think, I think in the same sense that that a, a a live telecast from the Met will never replace being there in person. The 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 feel that you get of participating in an auction, and especially an evening sale, say at Christie's. Um, is well, this because people drink more, or why? <laughs> why is the evening sale different? It's 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 different in the sense that everybody is focused in such a small place, and and they're 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 there in person. But you also have all these people participating online and on the phones at the same time. But but it's really the the vibe in the room, which is irreplaceable. So let's go take it back for a second. How do you go about finding things? People just call up or do you have a sense of, of people you sold to might be willing to sell back in, like they might want to get rid of some stuff or do you read the paper to see who's died and see if they're a <laughs> wine collector and then call up the widow? I mean, how do you go about sussing out who might have things for sale? I like to think it's a little more tactful than that. But <laughs> I, would, I, would be, I would be lying if I said that it didn't often come down to the traditional three Ds of debt divorce and death things that you know make people reconsider do i need to own this or now that i own it what's it worth um the 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 short answer is all of the above yes we we have a a dedicated group of people that we we have been dealing with for many many years we have regular new inquiries both on the phone on the via email and uh and often in, in person introductions interpersonal relationships are the core of any anything that we do um, and being introduced to new cl- new potential clients through existing ones is always going to be a strong part of what we do. If I had my my way, I would I would much prefer face to face interaction with people because I think it really cements a, a an honest person to person relationship as opposed to I'll get back to you when I can. I'll send you an email, you know, whenever, and it's it's a lot more real and personal. Um, and yeah, it, do, it does happen that that people who have purchased. From us over the years, they might have a divorce. They might end up dying, and eventually things sort of come back. Is it an aggressive market? Are there a lot of auction houses looking for consignments? Uh, you know, or is it the opposite? Or what's the reality? No, it's it's, it's it has become a very it's not cutthroat in the sense of of 
of everybody sort of trying to undermine each other at anybody at any cost. It's it, it is competitive. It's very competitive. I mean, domestically, I mean, Christie's worldwide uh, has the highest had the highest sales in 2012 of any of any auction house. Um, but that includes art and stuff, right? No, just wine. Oh, really? Oh, I didn't know that. Uh, yes, globally, Christie's had, was number one in terms of of any sale, but we were also number one in terms of wine sales. Um, so our, our nearest competitor, Acker, uh, also sells in in Hong Kong and in the U.S. There's also Sotheby's, who does a substantial amount of business in uh, in London, um, and also certainly does uh, does fine art sales as well. Uh, Zaki's domestically in, in in Hong Kong, and then. Uh, out of Chicago, HDH, Hart Davis Hart, and uh, and Spectrum, and a few smaller uh, auction houses around the country. Um, but by and large, it basically comes down to Christie's, <clears throat> Acker, Sotheby's, uh, Zaki's, Hart Davis Hart. So when you see one of those guys from the other company like dining with a big collector, you're like, damn, they scooped me on the the whatever sale or i mean what is what's the reality of like trying to make the it is i mean get the guy signed very often you know if if someone has a big collection it's in their interest to sort of you know shop it around so we'll get inquiries things can be very competitive we and sometimes people are up front with it they say well i'm talking to some other people you know it it just puts the incentive on us to really show why why they're actually going to make more money selling with us than with someone else because we're actually going to do a better job than the other people involved. Is it like a scene out of Jerry Maguire? You're like, <laughs> okay, we can take you to the LA Rams or we could go with Denver. You know what I mean? Like that kind of thing. And you're like, walk through the showroom and show them who you are. And like, you know, make them deals. It is. No, it is. I mean, it, it, we're not all just sitting at desks all the time, you know, crunching numbers. Or, But the other side is that we're also not out drinking all the time either. It is very much a case of, of, of on a personal level, getting getting in front of people and showing them that they have options, other good options are out there, but you know we're kind of going to do it better than other people will. There have been high-profile fraud um, cases. Has that changed the market? Has that altered the way business happens, or not? I mean, what what's the reality of being working in an auction house today for wine? The reality now, and at Christie's, I think more so than most other places, is that we we really do take it very seriously. It's not one of those situations where, well, you know. It's somebody else's problem. It's very much everybody in the industry's problem. Not everybody has been as upfront and honest about, you know, verifying where these where the wines come from. They really haven't. I mean, we have a very serious, complicated set of of criteria that we go through every time when there's a question. And and honestly, it's just it's not worth it. Has it changed the scope of what you do? I mean, I. I feel like people, when you ask at an auction, like, hey, can can you, uh, you know, an auction company representative, any company, like, can you appraise this? They're like, well, no, we don't, we don't appraise things, yeah. you know, like that. I mean, where are the delicate lines of how things have changed because of, of these situations that have come up? I mean, it, it's, all, it's always kind of been our, our policy to, I mean, we can offer advice in terms of things that we, that we take, take in to sell. In, in general, we're not, it's it's not in our interest or anyone's interest to get involved in, in in making claims about authenticity or about you know insurance value if 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 it's not something that we're that we're selling. I mean we 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 take the steps very seriously, but at the same time, like I was going to say, it, it's not worth it to put us or anyone else in a situation where there's where there's a question. Um, at the end of the day, you end up 
pushing away more people as potential buyers than you ever would get as as uh, as interested parties for something that you're selling. Do you think that the auction market has fundamentally changed since a couple of years ago when we started to see these cases emerge, or are some of these problems still, you know, day to day issues? Or I mean, what's what's the reality? I mean, have there been fundamental changes? Oh, I think there have been been tremendous changes. I really do. I, I think that people in all levels of the industry are taking it a lot more seriously, and that I can really only speak for us in terms of of. The, how seriously that we do take it on a daily basis, and I, I do inspection, just like anybody else in the department. We all we all go through the process of in, of inspecting wine once it physically comes into the warehouse and before we offer it for sale. So, hey, a lot of it, a lot of it gets uh, goes before quite a few quite a few eyes before it goes anywhere near a catalog. And is that where that kind of role as a previous sommelier really helps you? Because you're like, yeah, I'm actually familiar with this wine. Yeah, and 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 th- there's no real replacement for having served bottles, I think, and but also having tasted bottles, because part of the reasons why we're very serious about about tasting wine from collections as representatives is that. You know, there's there are certain telltale signs for things that either they've been stored well, they haven't been stored well. Um, you can often tell in the bottles from the exterior, but it's it's unless unless you've seen a large quantity of these bottles in the past, it's not o- not often intuitive for for what what is a red flag and what's not. Where do you see the future of the auction market going? I mean, are there trends that you're witnessing that you think are going to get bigger or or smaller? I mean, where, what's going to happen in another ten years? I, th- I, it'd be hard to say for sure, but I, I do think that that online is the absolute future of wine auctions. It's the future of every, of every sort of form of buying and selling, um, not just not just wine, but pieces of fine art, silver whatever you can imagine selling. Um, I think that, like I said, we're going to see a generation of people who are just as comfortable, if not more comfortable, with with um, building their collections through online platforms. I think that people are going to continue to be very demanding in terms of the the quality of the wine that's, that's offered. Um, and I think that the big, big question is, is mainland China. In terms of, uh, of of developing connoisseurship and developing uh, uh, collections, and what do they seem interested in these days in mainland China? Um, well, I mean, it's it, it's very early for that. We've just Christie's is is the first auction house to to do wine sales in uh, in, in in mainland uh, Hong Kong has definitely been the the, the focus for for quite a long time, um, but we have a very very special relationship, a very close relationship with uh, with, with selling on the mainland. And we are very proud to, to be the first one to do that. Um, I think that in general, it's it's really going to move away from the the, the traditionally held names of, of of quality wine. I mean, Lafitte was the big success story in Hong Kong when when prices got to beyond astronomical. Um, when you literally could not flip it fast enough, it was like the housing market. The same thing. I mean, by the time that you turned around, it had doubled in price. Or people would name a price and then just double it and they would get it. Um, I think that Burgundy is going to continue to rise in terms of in terms of its uh, appreciated value. Um, there you have a, a built-in stopgap because the production of, of, of the top-tier wines is so small that doesn't really exist in, in, in Bordeaux in the same way. Um, I don't know how high Burgundy could go. I think wines from DRC, from Rumier, from 
from Jaye. I'm. It's going to be an interesting ride up, <laughs> but they they're they're really going in 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 one direction. Sean Paul, thank you very much for sharing your time today. Really a pleasure, Levy. Thank you very much. Sean Paul of Christie's, thank you. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Skella has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L-drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.